Hello and welcome to Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. Something a little different this time as I'm going to talk about Australian politics with Judith Brett, author of the great book I've just finished reading, From Secret Ballot to Democracy Sausage. Welcome to the show, Judith. Thank you very much. Um, There are many parallels between Australian-British democracies. We both have two houses of parliament, a prime minister rather than a president, a sort of mostly two-party system. Uh, But there are also some big differences. Uh, Australia's use of the alternative vote and the single transferable vote, the way voting is mandatory in Australia. And then, of course, there is the whole democracy sausage thing mentioned in your book title. So let's start with that. What are they all about? Democracy sausages. Look, these are... They started with um, sausages that are bought at polling booths. Now, for that to happen, there's two things about the Australian electoral system that's different from what I understand happens in Britain. The first is we held our elections on a Saturday. Uh, so, And the second is that you um, voters have a choice of the polling booths they go to, mm. that you, you're not, you don't have to go to the po- polling booth that you registered at. So you can actually go to any polling booth in the state. But generally people go to a polling booth within their electorate, but they'll have a choice of where to go. Now, since the 80s, well, for a long time, um, fundraising committees, uh, because elections are often held in schools or in kindergartens or community halls, so voluntary associations would say, well, okay, we can, we've got all these people coming through the door, we'll have a street stall. Well, from the 1980s onwards, once the, barbecue, the portable barbecue was invented, uh, people, fundraising committees started selling barbecued sausages or sizzled sausages. I'm not sure what you call them in, 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 in Britain. Um, and that, and, but then in the early, around 2010, 2012, a bunch of young people said, well, how do we know which polling booth will have a, a sausage at it? Let's set up a website. And so they set up a website called Snag Votes, which, um, which had a little map, and, and then people would send in photos of themselves eating sausages. And then that another bunch of people set up another website, which they called Democracy Sausage, and then it just took off. Young people thought this was fantastic. It sort of somehow linked the election day um, outing to, to, in, to gave it a social media presence. So that's where the democracy sausage came from. And so do people in part choose where to vote based on where they're going to get the best sausage? Is that? That's right. That is is so wonderfully different from the British political (laughs) culture. And, you know, and and then and whether or not they have vegan sausages available, vegetarian options, what what sort of coffee you can get, because now it's become a thing. the, the fundraising committees obviously play into it yeah. and there's cupcakes and all sorts of things. But, yes, that's right. That's how people decide where to go to vote, maybe meet their friends there because, as I say, it's Saturday, uh, Saturday morning. Often people will do it on their way shopping or in the warmest states. I'm in Victoria, so not so much here, on their way to the beach. And yeah. I mean, that whole question of weekend voting, we've, we have experimented with it a little bit in Britain. There were some pilots a few years back, which I always think were, were a much underexploited possibility that the, you know, the pilots we did were not terribly successful, but they were not very well run. So, for example, there was, we, we piloted weekend voting one year on the weekend after the main round of elections that year had 
taken place on on the Thursday. So people who lived in the in in Watford, if I remember correctly, on Friday, Saturday, the national news was all about the elections have happened and these were the results. And yet then they were meant to vote over that weekend. So so it didn't really work. But in a way that I think may have just been the, the national media coverage, essentially. Well, look, Saturday voting in Australia was legislated in 1911. Mm. We've been voting for more than 100 years on a Saturday. And the just one other before we sort of talk a little bit more about that sort of history of the development of Australian democracy and how different it is. From Britain, which is what I found fascinating about your book, is reading it from a British perspective, where the story about how democracy develops, you know, has a rather different ending in that sense. That you know, we both both our countries have universal suffrage, but so many other things are, are so different. But you mentioned about people having a choice about where to vote. Does that mean even in say the House of Representatives, so the Australian equivalent of our House of Commons, you, you presumably at least have to choose somewhere to vote within that House of Representatives constituency, or can you actually vote just anywhere within the state, within say New South? You can Wales? vote. You can vote anywhere within the state, yeah. uh, and this was again introduced very early on. Um, in the Commonwealth Franchise Act in 1902 because the Labor Party really um, pushed for it because they had, they'd spent a lot of time um, getting getting itinerant rural workers to join trade union. And so shearers, drovers, you know, people working in the outback. And they said, well, they won't know where they're going to be when they vote. They have to be it, it, um, they might not be able to get to a post office, whatever. So um, this this idea that you could vote anywhere in the state has been there since 1902, and it was really pushed by Labor so that itinerant workers would not be disenfranchised by not being able to get back to the to to the polling booth near their home address where they were registered. And how does that work with the ballot paper? Does every polling station then have to have a stack yep. of ballot papers for all the other constituencies? That's right. That's yeah. I mean, that <laughs> is just a really nice example, I think, isn't it, of of the the extent to which what history has almost thrown up by accident ends up seeming the norm. When if you try to do it somewhere else, you know, if we try to introduce that now in Britain, the whole logistics of every polling station having to have ballot papers for you know, every constituency or maybe every constituency in England, in England and in all Scotland and Scotland. It, just the logistical and practical arguments yeah. completely sink it. In a way, though, clearly, I mean, it works in Australia, doesn't it? Is you don't have problems with the wrong ballot papers or running out of ballot papers. No, but, but, but um, our, our House of Representatives is a lot smaller mm. than, 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 than the House of Commons. Um, so, you know, I think, I, I look... I think it's 152, and then that's spread across the six states plus the two territories. So we're not talking about about huge numbers. Uh, people can also, you know, apply for postal votes, which a lot of people do. Yeah. And now what's happening um, is we're having pre-poll voting, which I'm ambivalent about. I mean, it makes it more convenient for people. So the poll, so there's polling booths open for two weeks before the. Yeah sometimes for three weeks. So that makes it much easier for people. I mean, the reason I'm ambivalent is it takes away from the, the, sort, of se- the sort of sense of community celebration that, that's built up around yeah. the Saturday voting, which in a way the democracy sausage is a sort of, you know, expression of or a symbol of. Yeah, and, and I mean, even, you know, I have a postal vote because I'm normally busy 
campaigning on polling day but you're right you know yeah. I, even though our, our polling stations don't come with sausages and sort of community stalls outside it's something every time I cast my postal vote I regret it a little bit that you don't get that act of walking somewhere to I think it makes voting feel more special you know I, I otherwise because I'm not religious, would never visit my local church, but my local polling station is, is right next to the church. So it, it would otherwise make voting quite a special and different act, whilst filling in a form that you get through the post is just, you know, what I'm doing every week. Yeah, and also it sort of, it's it's a sort of just a lesson in what democracy is, because you see all these people mm. who, some of whom, you know, like, it's a motley crowd and you realise actually your vote, you know a lot about politics, you've got very well-informed opinions and your vote is going to count for exactly the same. And But these people are lining up and they're taking it seriously and they're there and they're thought, you know, like I find that, that I like that. Yeah. Um, the, 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 the other curious thing I find thinking about the contrast with British politics is in terms of what you've mentioned about you know, voting on Saturday, being able to vote anywhere in the state, not just in your, you know, your local polling station and indeed early voting. Those are all things that in the British context get talked about in terms of should we do things like that, or at least two out of the three get talked about, you know, should we do them to try and raise turnout? Um, but in Australia, of course, that's not a factor because you have mandatory voting. And again, that's something I just it's quite hard to imagine a, a at least a sort of a modern democracy introducing mandatory voting now. It feels like that's, you know, a, for better and for worse, a quirk of Australia's political history that it, that it had it. So how did Australia get mandatory voting? And, and, and that this whole argument, the whole set of arguments you would expect about, is it right for the state to order people to do stuff and so on? Why did that not stop Australian, uh, Australia adopting uh, mandatory voting? Okay, well, I suppose a couple of, but firstly, before we got mandatory voting, we had compulsory registration. So um, it was, whereas my understanding is that in a lot of countries, um, it's up to the individual to get themselves onto the electoral roll, whereas actually you have a legal obligation in Australia once you're 18 to be on the electoral roll. And, and, and when you're in the UK, it is, technically you do have a legal obligation uh, but it's a legal obligation that is not, it, it's really rare for somebody to be prosecuted for failing to fill in an electoral registration form properly, unless it's something like fraudulent in terms of a fake personality for fraud. Yeah. Um, so, well, so I, I think, yeah, as you say, Australia is quite unusual in that respect, isn't it? Well, yeah, well, it's, but it's compulsory, but also the electoral office, it's now the electoral commission, but from 1902, we had an electoral office. So, our elections were run by public servants. They put a huge amount of resources into getting people onto the rolls. So when the federation, when a new role was needed, there was a habitation survey yeah. and they and the bureaucrats got this very complete role. Now, they were very proud of themselves, um, but they also, it was a lot of government resources going into it. So they basically, it was basically the bureaucrats argued that they wanted the politicians to make compulsory for people to get onto the roll. They didn't see why they, because people, when people moved. Now, of course, people move addresses. That's difficult. So now what happens, and this is quite recent, is you don't even have to tell the Electoral Commission when you change addresses. They do it, they link the roll to motor registration 
information. So they make it as easy as possible now for people to stay on the roll. So the first thing was we had compulsory registration. Now, once we had compulsory registration, the bureaucrats would say, look, we've put all this effort into it. Why shouldn't we have compulsory voting as well? And um, there was, there'd been arguments for compulsory voting on and off in the second half of the 19th century. And the barriers to it had always been practical. Questions like, well, how much should we fine people for not voting? And if we make the fine too big, well, then people won't register to vote because then they'll be you know, exposing themselves to a fine. Um, won't there be too many people and it'll just be the compliance problem will be too great? Nobody, I went through all the debates of every time, you know, compulsory voting raised its head. And there was very few times that anybody raised what we would call a sort of philosophical objection, the sort of objection you were referring to, should the state compel people to vote. In fact, what people say, look, the state already makes us do a whole lot of things. We have to send our children to school. We have to um, inform of certain sorts of diseases. You know, we have to pay taxes. We have military service. So nobody was that worried about it. So then when it was introduced, it was 1924, so it's after the First World War. Um, the turnout was starting to slump. Um, it was a difficult, pretty difficult decade, but, you know, period after the war here, as I'm sure it was in, as it was in Britain as well. Uh, and there was people, the notion of duty was quite high in, you know, in people, people's minds. And the sort of people, more conservative groups who you might have thought might raise questions about liberty and freedom of conscience, they'd all argued for compulsory military conscription during the First World War. So those arguments had almost no purchase in that time. So it went through very easily. It had support across the, across, um, the political spectrum. Hardly anybody vote, spoke against it. Um, the only person who spoke was a couple of people, but one of them was a Labor guy who said, well, I don't support this, but because I'm in the Labor Party and we we, we do support it, I'll vote for it. You know, so it, it just went through and it's been there ever since. And every now and again you get the odd politician who will try to raise it and there's a group in the Liberal Party, which is our sort of Conservative Party, um, who every now and again make the sort of arguments you make, the state shouldn't tell people how to vote. But on the whole, everybody, you know, whenever surveys are done, it's 70% or so of people would say, yes, they support compulsory voting. And I think since Brexit and the election of Donald Trump in America, more Australians support compulsory voting than that before. Touches, that touches on what I found really intriguing about the story for it in Australia. It's because I think... At first, when I was reading the account in your book, it sort of, it makes sense in its own right that, you know, the particular sequence of events, and as you say, things like, you know, military conscription in the First World War, and if you've just agreed the state can order people to go and be killed, the state ordering people to go and eat a sausage and vote seems quite minor. But, you know, the logic of, of the narrative seems very compelling, but reading it, it from a British perspective, the bit that I sort of found most puzzling was yes, but why did that not happen in other countries? And and the big difference that, that really leapt out at me was this point about in most countries, most of the time, higher turnout is seen to benefit those on the centre-left and the left. 
And so, for example, had were turnout in the U- last US presidential election, had it been a lot higher, almost certainly that would have benefited Hillary Clinton instead of Donald Trump. But in Australia, it was the reverse, at least in the late 19th and early 20th century, it was those on the right who most wanted to raise turnout. And therefore, those who might have been most likely to make the arguments about constraining state power and not wanting the state to be ordered to be, do stuff, their political self-interest, they they viewed it seemed to be that they wanted turnout to be higher. Is that right? Well, they people, one of the arguments that was put, um, not so much by Labor, Labor never really objected to it because Labor was all for compulsion anyway, you know, because it, like people joining unions and um, it, it was a sort of, majoritarian democratic party but one of the arguments that conservatives put was look if you don't have compulsory turnout what you get is the zealot of either end will come out you'll get you know the extreme left and you'll get the extreme right now the the people they were concerned about was the temp was the at that stage at the turn of you know the last turn of the century was the was religious bigots who were pushing for 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 banning of alcohol, that was you know a big issue, and they thought that they and they were they there were these very well organised sort of Protestant temperance organisations, and so a lot of businesses thought they you know that they they'd be organised, and they they thought that and then that busy business people and busy farmers and things, if it wasn't compulsory, you know, they'd have good intentions, but they wouldn't get around to it, and they thought that if you made it compulsory, more sensible sensible people who were not as agitated about politics would vote. And I think that's probably the case. I mean, our politics has been very stable mm. and, um, um, and there, you know, there's people talk about the sensible centre. And But I th- the other thing I think that's maybe different is we got, Australia got manhood suffrage very early, like mm. half more than half a century before in Great Britain, with very little struggle, um, that that the, there was a sort of majoritarian democracy sort of baked into the political system. And so one of the arguments that I would say probably the, the most, it was most regularly put and was put by Conservatives as well as by Labor was if you have compulsory voting, you know that your government is supported by the majority of the electors. And everybody thought that was a good thing, that it gave the government greater legitimacy. Um, so, you know, and, and I've, I've puzzled about why England hasn't got it. And I thought, I mean, I understand why they haven't got it in the United States because of their very strong sort of more libertarian political culture. I've, I've wondered whether in in the United Kingdom it's it's because of the class system and the, the notion of the sort of responsible householder as as the as the the sort of pillar of the, of, of of civic life has a, has a bit a, 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 a stronger grip. I mean, you'd be better. I mean, yeah, I, I, in Australia, it seems why hasn't why hasn't everybody why hasn't everybody else seen such a such a good idea? I, I think part of the answer is that well, certainly if you were to try to argue for its introduction now, there would be that big practical problem of you know you would result there would probably be very widespread breaking of the law in that sense you know of of lots of people not voting 
And then that immediately becomes impractical from are we going to are we going to you know pass a law which will result in a million or so or maybe several million yeah. criminal offences being carried out on polling day? And what do we then do? And if we don't then somehow try to fine or imprison all of those people, it then becomes a charade from day one. But if you're really trying to then criminalise several million people, that has a whole set of how on earth do you get all of those cases through the legal system? So you can see why having a world in which turnout is significantly below 100%, it's quite hard to then introduce mandatory voting. Now, I have You've to say... You've also got a very though, big electorate. I was going to say, even though there is right back a criminal charge, the fine is not that high. What happens is if, you do, if your name is not crossed off the electoral roll, you get a letter asking you... Um, why you didn't do it, if you've got a reason, and giving you actually quite a small fine, like maybe $20 or $30. It's only if you refuse to pay that that it goes any further. Occasionally there'll be someone who for some reason will decide to make a stand, but mostly people just pay it and it, it goes. So you don't end up with courts clogged. Yeah. I mean, that would be impossible. So there's, it's, it's not a very penalty. Yeah. But but because it's a sort of expectation, like in school, in the last year of school, everybody, that would be one of the things that was done, everybody gets on the electoral roll, you know? But I, I think also, that light touch enforcement in a way only works if you already have the culture where it's the norm. And so, yeah, so I, that's, think, yeah. I think part of the reason I guess Britain doesn't have it is because we didn't introduce it previously. And, and in a way, it comes back to your point maybe about how, relatively quick Australia was to give all men the vote and therefore the debate moved on to other things whilst in Britain you know the debate was still about whether or not all men let alone women should have the vote. Um, That's right because we also gave women the vote like almost two decades earlier. Yeah. And, to, and, and I was yeah. really struck in that in that one of the earlier stages of the sort of achievement of of universal suffrage in Australia seemed to basically rest quite heavily on the ignorance of British parliamentarians <laughs> that at one stage there was this proposed property-based franchise, so similar to what was the norm in Britain, but that it's, it seems like British parliamentarians signed off on it, not realising that the difference in property values between Australia and Britain was such that they were signing off on a much more generous and more That's democratic right. franchise than they realised. Is is that is was it really as simple as that? That they just oh, it was look, an admin blunder by the British Parliament that helped give Australia democracy. Uh, well, look, that's the that's in the first. I mean, we didn't get any elections until the eighteen forties when um, the colony started to get yeah. some self government. So that that was the case for the first decade um, when there was when the when British law when the British Parliament still controlled the franchise laws. But once um, self-government was, uh, the colonies got their own constitutions, they then had their own franchise laws and they gave, you know, basically Victoria and New South Wales and South Australia all had, had ma male suffrage by, the, by, about, by, the, by 1860. Now, that being said, this is for the lower house. There was, prop there was still property... Um, qualifications to vote in some in the in the upper houses in yeah. in the in the colonies and then and in the the and in Tasmania and Western Australia it, it was it was much later mm. colonies which still had um con had 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 more convicts yeah. uh but so yes yeah, so initially initially that was right but then 
then the colonies, in a way, took the franchise into their own hands. I think chartism is really important mm. in understanding um, why it was so early in Australia. The, and with the gold, like the gold, there was a gold rush in Victoria in the early 1850s, and there was a big influx of population. And many of those were young, young adults influenced by chartism. So there was there was a sort of democratic ethos. And, and 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 not really an established and entrenched property class to resist it. And so that was Chartism as in the big political campaign in Britain in the sort of mid-19th century where the, there was the yeah. Charter and the demands for a set of democratic reforms, which, uh, well, for, certainly, for example, the annual parliaments that the Chartists demanded, we know we've never had, although we've got pretty close to it, I guess, in recent years with the length of our parliament. But, you know, they, they, they demanded manhood suffrage and they demanded the secret ballot yeah. um, and they demanded one vote, one value, yeah. you know, so things like that, yeah. How interesting, because, yeah, I, I mean, there's a big debate in, you know, British political history about how much of an impact the Chartists had because they... You know, the, the, the initial impact of their petitions to Parliament and so on wasn't to secure electoral reform, but obviously, you know, campaigns often can achieve things and influence the development of events, even if they don't have an immediate sort of success. But it sounds like one of the side effects of, of Chartism was was to help export democracy to Australia then in terms of that yeah. influx. Yeah. Of, um, and, and one other sort of historical weird quirk that really caught my eye in your book was this experimentation with round ballot papers for a little <laughs> while uh, what was what was that all about oh that's about the fact that, well that's because we have preferential voting um where um i think you you give it you gave it another alternative voting or alternative vote that, is what we call it or, or yeah, STD yeah, the alternative vote. The yeah. but yeah um, the alternative vote would be what we would call the house of representatives electoral system if we had it here yes so because of that uh, where people can go one two three four giving their preferences it depends where you position is on the ballot paper because there's always a bit of a donkey vote so if you get the first one and they used to be put on alphabetically so you had all these people who would change their names to have a double a in their name and things now it's done randomly but somebody suggested well if you had a round ballot paper well then nobody would get the um the advantage and what they'd actually do in Tasmania for the Tasmanian ones is that they randomise the distribution of names on the ballot paper in order to make the donkey vote irrelevant. Yeah. But it, it, they haven't done that more generally. But I, I put it in because it shows that there was a sort of does, um, preparedness to experiment in some ways with, it, with, with, with electoral system to try to get, you know, something which would most re reflect the view of the majority and that although we generally use first past the post for elections in britain i mean that question about if you're top of the ballot paper you get you do slightly better you know that that problem applies to british politics as well you know we have alphabetic ballot papers and there's particularly from council elections where you have multi-member wards so multiple candidates. Oh, so you still have alphabetic ballot papers yeah we still have alphabetic ballot papers it's and yeah there's a real impact the thing that i guess and you do get a little bit of and it tends to be female candidates sometimes you know, getting a little bit of flack about why have they chosen to use either their married name or their their pre-married name, and are they choosing, you know, the, a name that will therefore get them higher up the ballot paper? We don't have people 
abusing the system by changing their name by deed polls to stick in a few extra A's at the beginning, you know, in the way that, in the way that weirdly, I remember people did used to do that for the phone book. Um, I'm not sure what it reveals about my childhood, but I used to quite enjoy reading bits of the London phone book because at the beginning you would have all of these normal names, but would have something else at the, added to the beginning of them to put them at the start of the phone book. So I remember there was a Mr. Aaron Aardvark who was actually one <laughs> of the first entries in the London phone book. You sort of think, uh, I mean, I guess he might have been a genuine name, but there were others that were clear. Yeah, so, so thankfully, candidates no, well, at least British one, elections I mean, don't I, that. No, but we have a system whereby um, the candidates' names are all put into a hat or something and they're, mm. they're just drawn out. So there's, if you like, a ballot to where you go on the ballot paper. Yeah, and I think that would be much more sensible. Um, I mean, the Electoral Reform Society here in the UK, I mean, they have in the past sometimes gone a bit to town with trying to avoid bias from alphabetic order. Because I remember some years in the past where to have their elections for the Electoral Reform Society's council, so, you know, where the members of the society get to vote who run, for who runs it, they had randomised the names on the ballot paper, but then they had the names in the manifesto booklets in a different order. And that just felt like this was taking fairness to the point of being in, <laughs> incomprehensible, you know, you know, thinking, well, how do I match up the names I've just read about with the names on the ballot paper? But, but you're, yeah, it, it's one of those things that I suspect were we to have a, a relevant government minister who felt strongly about it, we would introduce randomising names on the ballot paper. And within a few years, it would seem absolutely the norm and would think how weird it was that we never you know, had never changed that in the past. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and so round ballot papers didn't didn't last very long, did they? No, no. I think that the logistics of printing would have, uh, you know, all that wasted paper at the yeah. edges. No, no. Yeah. And just uh, sort of finally, just to backtrack to one thing you said earlier, where you talked about Australian politics being relatively stable, um, my picture of Australian politics from the outside is that, at least at the federal level, Australian politics seems remarkably unstable. I mean, not just I'm not just thinking about how many different leaders the Australian Labour Party has gone through, <laughs> but also right. things like incumbent MPs, uh, sorry, incumbent prime ministers being ousted by their own party. Yeah, that's true. That, yeah. There seems to be a lot of instability of that i want i mean there is maybe some grand political science theory about the stability in some respects plays out in instability in other areas but what is it that's stable about australian politics oh i suppose what i was thinking of there was um the fact that that, that there's a sort of people accept the legitimacy of election outcomes so it seemed to me that that looking at what happened with Brexit, part of the problem there was that it hadn't been thought through in an electoral way. You know, like we also have the possibilities of having referenda, but if you, which can be used to change the constitution, but for those to happen, there's quite a lot of checks in place. You know, there has to be a majority of the country and a majority of the states. So, so um, it seemed to me that part of the problem with Brexit was actually it was a minority vote. If you looked at the people, it was a, it was a majority of the people who voted. But it was, So I suppose that's what I was getting at, that, yes, there's, there's, there's changes in personnel and things, but the major parties, the Liberal and, and Labor, have been there for a long time with the country party. So the sort of coalition versus Labor 
has been relatively stable. We've had and we still have little eruptions on the far right, but they don't really, um, they haven't, they haven't altered the, uh, and, and we've got, you know, a fairly, a, a pretty effective Greens party, and, but it hasn't, um, it, it, it hasn't really changed the basic structure and the elections are won and lost on pretty small margins mm. too, you know, so, um, <sighs> And, and the other advantage of compulsory voting, um, I think, is that it means that a politician knows that they can't afford to exclude large sections of the electorate because they're not going to turn up at the polls. And I think that, if you like, also adds to the stability that that um, that policy making has to be relative, a bit more, certainly more egalitarian than what we see in. The United States, and to some extent, I mean, like the austerity measures. I don't think anybody in Australia would have got away with that. Mm. Even you know the the, the the conservative coalition would have got away with that. Mm. And I because, guess one of the, I mean, I think given the depth of the financial crisis that Britain was in, I'm not sure that necessarily. I'm not sure I'd necessarily agree with that, but I think what definitely would have been different about the dynamics in British politics is that those who suffer from particular government policies, if they're less, much less likely to vote in elections, then you know, the policy decisions are more likely to go against them. And, it, and it's really noticeable in Britain how pensioners who vote much more heavily than, than average tend to do a lot better out of public policy decision-making, say, at budget time, than, for example... Um, people who are unemployed, who often have a much yes. lower turnout than pensioners. And so, you know, I mean, both pensioners and unemployed people are, you know, good, deserving people who should be treated well by the state. But I'm sure it's not a coincidence that the group that's more likely to vote is the one that overall tends to get <laughs> the better treatment by the British political system in a way that yes. in Australia, you wouldn't have that sort of distinction because both groups have to vote. And in practice, you know, both groups vote in 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 heavy numbers, don't they? Yes, although, you know, pensioners, or certainly retirees, are a bit more likely to vote for the coalition. But, I mean, the example that I use in the book is we got a, a national health system pretty late. It wasn't until Whitlam in the in the 70s introduced it. And it was not didn't have bipartisan support. The coalition came in, they got rid of it. Labor came back, they reinstated it. Now, the, co the Liberal Party was actually opposed to this more to a national health system, but after 13 years of Labor government, it was sort of bedded down and it was very popular. And John Howard, everybody knew when he was Prime Minister, he didn't support Medicare, call it, but he didn't move against it. Mm. You know, it would have been electoral suicide too mm. for him because. So I th and I sort of wonder with if it had we hadn't have had compulsory voting, whether they might have. Um, played played harder you know sort of risked trying to get rid of medicare mm. but they it so that that was the sort of example that i was using i mean we've still got the coalition has still been supporting an extremely low level of support income support for unemployed people although they've had to increase it since the pandemic mm. because um they're, they're somehow making people who are unemployed because of the pandemic deserving whereas other people were previously not so but i do think it makes for 
sort of it, it's a sort of discipline on on the politicians in a way to not to not um, feel they can exclude people and and I suppose that's particularly the case when you look at a, a country like the United States where you see marginalised groups really being left out. The other advantage I think in a country like Australia with compulsory voting is that when when a new immigrant becomes a citizen, they also get the obligation to vote. Mm. And that actually pulls them into the polity. Mm. And I think that's a good thing too, rather, rather than them feeling that they, you know, they're here, they've got their permanent residency, they're a citizen, but they don't actually have to take much notice of what's happening. Yeah. And, and I think the other thing that Australia therefore avoids is that sort of dark side of politics where political campaigning sometimes involves trying to put some of your opponents off voting and that you know that uh, which we saw particularly with the trump campaign at the last u.s presidential election there was you know the the trump campaign's approach to black american voters was predominantly to try and put them off voting at all um oh yes and and, yes. and you just you know again that tactic just doesn't work in australian politics i think hopefully this has given listeners a bit of a flavor about what i find so interesting about australian politics because it's similar enough yet also different in so many crucial ways that it's a really fascinating mirror uh to hold up you know say british politics to because you can you know the similarities mean there are some good comparisons to be made but the differences also really bring to light how some things that we almost take for granted in british politics don't necessarily have to be that way uh, so I would really recommend people to read, to get and read Judith's book from Secret Ballot to Democracy Sausage, How Australia Got Compulsory Voting. You can, of course, maybe eat a sausage, vegetarian or otherwise, while reading the book for the full effect. Um, I will include links to the book in the show notes. But thank you so much for your time, Judith. That has been absolutely fascinating. I think you're my first guest on this podcast who isn't on Twitter. Um, which is probably oh, yes. probably to your credit, <laughs> but you can find myself at Mark Pack and this podcast at Bar Chart Podcast. So thank you very much for your time, Judith, and thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Mm-hmm.